Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Culture, where we talk about the things that really matter. And listen, I'm delighted to tell you in the community that the culture sections that we've done and I've been practicing and think are important. Uh, in fact, the point of realism is to defend our culture, uh, not to be a realist about it, but to defend it from outside forces so that we can talk about the things that really matter. And I'm glad that so many of you feel this way and enjoyed our book clubs as we went through Raymond Chandler and now Ernest Hemingway. Um, the numbers, and we get this lovely from Substack algorithm of who reads what and why, and uh, we follow this, the staff do very closely to see if it's worth my time, and it is. The last piece we did on um, Farewell to Arms is the most read thing we've ever done on Substack, and I am incredibly gratified. Obviously, the politics for me are the bread and butter. Every morning I wake up trying to be the greatest foreign policy analyst in the world. I fail, but I certainly still try. Uh, and to be included in the list of the top four or five is what I strive for constantly. We're fiercely proud of our work there, but we're also broader than that. And, and, in, and in the kind of experience, the reason I'm a realist is to protect and value the very precious thing that is our culture and to spend time enjoying that with you. And I'm so glad that you all feel the same way. And so encouraged, we are now going to make the culture part of what we do every week. And we're going to finish, just to give you an idea, we're going to do The Snows of Kilimanjaro today, the greatest short story from America's greatest short story author. Um, I adore it, and we'll talk about why. And then we'll finish with two great Hemingway novels. And so we'll have done Fiesta, uh, Farewell to Arms, Snows of Kilimanjaro, For Whom the Bell Tolls, where he politically, in political risk terms, gets the Spanish Civil War right, um, and then Old Man in the Sea, one of his great swan songs. Unlike Fitzgerald, Hemingway had a long, up-and-down, varied career, but lived long enough to do good work well in, into his late middle age, and, and that really deserves discussion. And when we finish that, I think we'll do a series on albums you have to listen to before you die. Terry, this is for you, the first one. Jan Wenner stupidly said the other day, and I'll talk about this, that basically only old white men have made good pop music, and I refute that. The first two albums we'll look at of those five um, are Joni Mitchell, her album Blue, maybe one of the uh, certainly two or three best albums ever made, and stands up. She didn't last in longevity the way Bob Dylan did, but in terms of quality, and I adore Dylan, um, I think Blue stands up to the best of Dylan's work. And then we'll look at Marvin Gaye, What's Going On? Again, a concept album, totally underrated from an African-American artist, uh, not seen to be really the equal of things the Beatles were doing at the time. And the Beatles are my favorite band ever. And I think What's Going On stands up with the best of, say, Revolver, Rubber Soul, uh, things like that. So we'll start by proving Jan went wrong twice, then look at three other albums that we like um, from that period, and then move on to more literature. So the culture section is bursting. We'll do one a week and then hopefully two on the politics as we go. So thank you so much for your support and for enjoying our book club. And this is one that is undoubtedly worth worth reading. And again, I identify with Hemingway in a number of ways. Obviously, I've said Daryl, if you're out there listening, I also have through an odd series of circumstances. I'm a Midwesterner like Hemingway. Uh, I'm a writer like Hemingway and a thinker like Hemingway. Um, I've always had a very peculiar feelings about success and fame like Hemingway. I've lived abroad in Europe like Hemingway. 
And I value like Hemingway courage above all other qualities. And so these are the reasons I like him, I think. Um, and like Hemingway, I, you write about yourself one way or the other. I mean, I remember when I wrote Lawrence, my chief of staff at Heritage was saying to me, my ex-chief of staff was joking with me and saying, let me get this straight. You just wrote a biography about Lawrence of Arabia, a young, talented man who is both over and underrated at the same time, who doesn't reveal his personal side, but is fanatically committed to what he sees as being the truth, flaws and all. And he said, congratulations, you've just written an autobiography. And there's truth in that, that people, the best you write about yourself and hopefully truthfully, and rarely has there been as truthful a story as Snows of Kilimanjaro, which we'll get to in just a minute. But before we do, um, it's important to point out that Hemingway, um, again, like me, really excels in article writing. I love the the books I've written. I think Last Best Hope and uh, is right up there with anything I've ever done in terms of work. I'm incredibly proud of it. Uh, to Dare More Boldly and Last Best Hope to me are my revolver and my rubber soul. As George Harrison said about the two, I can't really tell the difference between them. I feel that way. Last Best um, hope is the American version of recreating the world through realism and in the same way to dare more boldly is the more international version of that. I mean, that's they're, they're, they're bookends of one another. And so I see them as going together. I love that. The Lawrence biography, I, I think, is, is fantastic. I love that. Um, I think ethical realism is an interesting failure, kind of white album failure, too much in it. Not all developed, but a very interesting failure. And I think that, um, what else have I done? I think Godfather Doctrine, which did so well. We, Wes and I took, Wes Mitchell and I took this interesting idea of linking American foreign policy to the movie The Godfather. I think that's a clever idea that stands up very well. I wish we'd had more time to develop it. Um, it became, in effect, a very small book after being a rather long article. Uh, but I, I mean, those stand up well. But frankly, I've written 1,200 articles, and I think if you just read the articles, you'd get a very good sense of what I am, who I am, what I think. And Hemingway's kind of caught in this trap that, that if you're doing what we're doing, if you're a writer, it's the books that matter. That's what's seen as serious. There's a great scene in Breakfast at Tiffany's where the George Papard character uh, mimicking Truman Capote says, you know, I'm supposed to save myself for the books and the short stories are supposed to pay the rent. And the problem for Capote, to some extent, certainly for Hemingway, and to some extent for me, um, is that, you know, I really like the articles. I like thinking in article form. I like, I like there being a limit, the pressure of condensation, forcing you to get to the point, being edgy and creative in a short period of time. And an article or a short story is best thought, and this was explained to me by a writer, you're having a conversation with a friend at a bus stop, and a bus is coming, and you quickly tell him the outlines of an intriguing idea, and then you hop the bus and leave. If you can do that, leaving them wanting more, you've probably done something. And rather than being seen as a frivolity or a way to pay the rent, I think articles and short stories really should stand on their own. And in the 20th century, I mean, easily the two greatest short story writers, though I think honorable mention has to go to Capote, um, his A Christmas Story is is one of the most moving things I've ever read. I commend you to read it. Um, it really, that A Christmas Story and Breakfast at Tiffany's, which he says is a novella. I think it's a long, short story, really. It's darker than the movie. 
uh, well worth more ambiguous in the movie, well worth reading. Um, but I think he's quite a, a fantastic short story writer. But the two greats of the 20th century are Chekhov. And it used to amaze me as I, I for one of my courses, I, I, I did Russian literature for part of my time at St. Andrews, where we read pretty much, I read every word Tolstoy's ever written. And I read a lot of Chekhov. And the amazing thing about Chekhov is that you're three pages from the end of the story. He's constructed a whole universe in 12 pages. The thing's only 15. And you say to yourself over and over again, he can never get to the end. It's impossible that he gets to the end. And every time he does as though it were a magic trick, what it really takes is great writing technical precision, knowing exactly, mastering what you're doing. And over and over again, he pulled this off to my amazement. And I love Chekhov for that reason. Hemingway is really his only pure competitor here. And when you compare him to other writers of his time, the most extreme case being his frenemy, Scott Fitzgerald. Scott Fitzgerald wrote Gatsby, whereas, again, Hemingway wrote to me the underrated Fiesta. But, but, but Gatsby is seen as probably the greatest novel of the 20th century by an American. Again, I'd argue I prefer Fiesta and some others, but Gatsby is undoubtedly a great novel. But where Hemingway undoubtedly has Scott Fitzgerald is that he lasted, that he wrote interesting things well into his late middle age, whereas uh, due to death and chronic alcoholism, I mean, uh, Hemingway was a functional alcoholic and, and Fitzgerald was not. Um, and that's and that's a problem. But but Scott Fitzgerald's short stories just don't add up to the volume or quality of Hemingway's. And so I decided that we should include one of his short stories among the five great works. And we're going to do these things in fives uh, for our book club, um, that the short stories on their own are fundamental. Whereas with Raymond Chandler, when we looked at it, his short stories he used as platforms to write the novels. That's one way to do things. Hemingway took another. His short stories were a universe apart. But he's more honest in them, gets to the point, and the great weight of the truth of Hemingway works to deadly effect when it's condensed. When it's condensed. And so I think they're every bit as good, his short stories, as anything he wrote fine as his novels were, and in the case of Fiesta, great as his novel was. Fine as they were, the short stories are better because the weight of his truth in a short period of time makes it all almost unbearable to read the honesty, and I, and I love that. We could have picked some other titles besides Snows of Kilimanjaro, and that's the great thing. Again, that speaks to his genius in short story writing. The Nick Adams stories, uh, and you know he's as close to autobiographical as Hemingway gets, though he's often autobiographical, as we've seen from Frederick Henry, uh, and we will see again with Robert Jordan coming up. But the Nick Adams stories are 24 short stories where they, they, they trace a young man from being a child through young adulthood to being a father, that he does, in effect, the cycle. And they're fully 24 Nick Adams stories, Probably the most famous is The Killers, when, when, when Nick Adams warns a, a, an aging pugilist, a former fighter, the guys have been sent to kill him, and, and the fighter doesn't care. It was made into an interesting movie, a uh, film noir movie. But The Killers is a fantastic short story, and when you add them together, the 24 Nick Adams stories really work. You can buy them in a separate edition on Amazon, but they're well worth reading. I like reading them kind of as I go through Hemingway stories that he would come back to Nick Adams again and again and again as an alter ego. But some of the writing there is just magnificent. And you get the sense of a man's journey from being a boy to, to being a father. 
and and I think they're well worth reading and are beautiful, beautiful writing. And then on its own, The Short Happy Life of Francis McComber, which is in the first 49 stories, um, which was published in 1938, along with Snows of Kilimanjaro, uh, is, is just wonderful on its own. I mean, it's an extraordinary story about a coward on safari, a rich man on safari who doesn't realize he's a coward. He's in his mid-30s until he runs away from shooting a lion. And his wife, who despises him anyway, now treats him with contempt, has an affair with the safari guide, and mocks him for being a weakling. And for Hemingway, you could you almost any sin was acceptable, but you can't be a coward. And and I, I agree with that. My line is in the office, we can be horse thieves. I'll put up with any any amount of nonsense, but we have to speak the truth as best we can. That that's what makes you a man or a woman. That that's a key fact. And McCumber's failed at this key fact. Um and he flees from the lion, uh, and although the you know the the scout and and and, and the natives um, kill the lion and they return to camp, they know he's a coward, and word gets around, and, and he's humiliated. Um, on the other hand, he pulls himself together, and that's what's really interesting is the rejuvenation of Francis McComber. He goes out again to hunt a water buffalo, and actually is brilliant, stands his ground bravely. To, to the impre- the guide is impressed by this and goes to his wife, wasn't that wonderful? And he's totally overcome his adversity, his cowardice, and shown real heroism, which Her- Hemingway described brilliantly as all that it is to be a hero is grace under pressure. I remember repeating this to myself as a mantra over the Iraq situation, that now is the time to show grace under pressure, that this is the first line of your obituary and you want to get it right. And Francis McCumber does this and goes to his wife, who's been despising him. They're rich and idle and mocking him. And the guide who's having an affair with her suddenly sides with Francis McCumber because of his show of growth and heroism and says to the the, the wife, you know, he's going to leave you because he's pulled himself together and isn't going to be treated as a doormat anymore. So the next time they go out hunting water buffalo, she shoots him uh, because she can't have him get out from under her psychological domination. And so the irony upon irony upon irony of the growth of this man leading to his death makes this an absolutely unique story, very Hemingway, but utterly unique, compelling, beautifully written. And again, uh, for the book club, the fifth column of the first 49 stories, first published in 1938, that's really what you read because you get Snows of Kilimanjaro and you also get The Short Happy Life of Francis McCumber, which, which is just fantastic. But we're going to look at Snows of Kilimanjaro, which was originally written in 1936 for Esquire magazine. Again, he's paying the rent. Um, and then republished in 1938 in the fifth column of the first 49 stories. Um, and I think it really is the apogee of Hemingway. And at this point, he's becoming a cartoon character of himself. He's He's left his first wife, Hadley, when he did really his best work, Fiesta, and he's gone on to his second wife, Pauline, who's a very rich woman, supporting him, and, and she's seen in the story um, as Helen, very unfavorably portrayed. I wonder how editing went on in the Hemingway household. Uh, but he's beginning to write the novels, you know, aren't, aren't working as well. Uh, there's nothing great being written. He's famous, but as, as famous for being famous as for what he's doing. It's all bullfights and overrated and overwrought novels. It's sloppy, and he's becoming a cartoon character of himself and despising himself for it to his credit. 
despising himself for, for doing some really up and down work in the 1930s. Before, I, I'd argue he has a great last innings and pulls it together uh, with For Whom the Bell Tolls um, and Old Man in the Sea, for which he finally wins the Nobel Prize for Literature that he's been looking for all his life. There's finally some accreditation late in the day. Um, but he's, he's at a very low point of his life. But what doesn't change is the quality of the short story. He still can manage this, even as he's drinking too much, self-loathing too much, fooling around too much, and generally being Hemingway-esque without the, the production. Uh, originally, Hemingway said when he started work, as, as an ambitious American would, and I love this about him, uh, they said, what, what do you want to be? And he said, the greatest writer ever. And he said, Tolstoy, I think rightly, is the heavyweight champion of them all, will probably do five on, on Tolstoy. I've read every word he's ever written, and I love him. Uh, but Hemingway's right to identify him as the goal, and he knows by the 1930s he's fallen well short of this. That, that, that all these other things, he's become a celebrity, this has taken up his time, and that he's not, given even the tremendous volume of work, he's overhyped, um, and he can't bear that. What I like about him is he can't bear it. Um, and so that is really the backdrop to Sonoza Kilimanjaro. And the, and, and the short story begins by talking about the frozen carcass of a leopard near the summit of Africa's highest mountain, Mount Kilimanjaro. The, the, the natives say there's a frozen carcass of a leopard near the summit, and no one knows why it's there. And the leopard really signals the striving of creatures on this planet to reach the sublime, to reach heaven. That in its dying moments, the leopard struggles up well above altitude and dies near the summit of the mountain, trying to touch the face of God, failing to do so, but that this is innate in all animals on this planet. And that universality of the story and making it a native tale from Africa, which Hemingway knew and loved, um, is really a touchstone that permeates the work. But that's the, at the beginning, it's you seem disoriented by it, but this actually really is a wonderful kind of couching of the story. And then we come to what's really going on down, down below the summit. Harry's there, Harry's Hemingway's alter ego. He's dying of gangrene with his wife, Helen, uh, while on safari in Africa. And uh, the reason they're stuck, so they're stuck is that the, the truck engine is burned out. So they're stuck at camp with, with him having gangrene, drifting in and out of a coma, drift, drifting in and out of fever while she worries as he slowly dies. He speaks to Helen of his coming death, Harry, and, you know, kind of a very matter of fact way, upsetting her. And that's really the basis to the, 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 this even Hemingway's stories, which really are true, and that's the great strength of them, telling the truth in a very courageous way, that, that this is the ultimate extreme example, that, that Harry knows he's dying. And so in moments of lucidity, he wants to look back on his life as honestly as he can, as brutally honestly as he can, because what he's trying to do is through this honesty like that leopard to touch the face of God at the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. And so... He starts talking about, you know, I'm going, I'm going to die. And this, of course, Helen is a creature. She's a wealthy woman. She's a creature of Western society, which he sees as, as decadent. And she's upset when he talks about dying, whereas for him, now's the time to speak the truth. And part of the truth is he's dying. And they quarrel over nothing. He gets irritable toward her because of this pretense of society. And so he makes up, he picks fights with her. He, they argue over his drinking whiskey, and his attitude is like, this doesn't matter anymore. I'm going to die. I'm going to drink as much whiskey as I like. 
and her reading to him, which actually should be helpful, but it's kind of performance art. It's, it's more to help her than to help him. She's reading to him and all it does in his fever is annoy him because he wants to think and she wants to be seen to help him. And it's this difference between what really matters in Western artifice. It's not that Helen's a bad person. She's not. But it's that he wants to do something profound and she's still going through the motions of Western society. And so he thinks about his life, uh, about the fact that he never reached his full potential as a writer. And for Hemingway to write this is as close to the bone as it gets. He can't bear the fact that he's never really reached his full potential as a writer and instead he married a series of wealthy women. And this relates to you know Helen and, and, and Hemingway's second wife, Pauline. Uh, that instead of doing the work he should do in the way that he should do it, this has been secondary, which is his reason for being. All this strikes a chord with me. Uh, he's, he's done other things. He's been, he's been distracted. And that the work is what matters. And this is done in a very stream of consciousness way. He, he drifts in and out of consciousness itself. And so some of it doesn't make a lot of sense is disembodied. Snows of Kilimanjaro is a tough read, beautifully written, but it takes going over more than once, as often these short stories do. First, savor the language, which is Hemingway at his finest, crystalline, muscular, gerund-ending, I-N-G verbs that move. But here you add in a stream of consciousness, which is disorienting, and it's supposed to be the guy's trying to be honest in the middle of having a fever. Um, he thinks back to what, what is the, the seminal events of his life have been of skiing and hunting, of fighting in the first European war as Hemingway did. And we saw in Farewell to Arms, the great retreat scene of the Battle of Caporetto. Uh, he rethinks that, um, Harry. Um, he then starts thinking if he's thought in broad about his life that the headline will be of the obituary. He's never lived up to his potential, but there have been these wonderful moments. He then thinks about his relationship with Helen next. And he thinks, you know, that she's a good woman, that she certainly loves him, but he doesn't really love her. Um, and the reason he thinks about this as, as he thinks about his fatal injury, uh, his right knee you know, entered into a thorn in the brush in Africa while he was trying to take a picture of a water buffalo. He didn't put iodine on the cut. And it got gangrenous, and here's this woman trying to help him in every way that she can. And, and she means well, but he doesn't really love her. Um, they drink cocktails and makeup, though. He realizes it's not her fault. Um, and, th and then again, he thinks about when he was in love, the first time he was truly in love. Um, and he broke up with this girl in Paris. He then goes off to Istanbul and frequents a series of prostitutes before going to Anatolia. Obliquely, he, he mentions the Armenian genocide, that, that he saw Turkish soldiers doing things in Anatolia that he can't unforget. Um, but that this breakup, he wrote, he, wrote, he wrote her a letter and he never got back together with the great love of his life. And so in addition to not fulfilling his work potential in terms of matters of the heart of love, which is the thing that matters to Hemingway, as it should, that he didn't fulfill his potential in love, that, that, that he let this quarrel separate himself from the woman, the young girl at the time he should have been with, and then wandered off with a series of prostitutes, wealthy wives, drinking, in other words, what happened to Hemingway. But that love is the answer, and that, that he muffed this, this, this fundamental hurdle. In terms of the things that matter in life, it's work and who you love. And, and I think that. Um, and these are the two things you have to get right and you build out from there. And, and, and Harry's realizing that he failed.
Um, and he looks at this dispassionately in some of the best writing ever made, ever written, when he talks about that Helen is a decent woman, uh, but he doesn't love her, and that, that he'd give it all to be back with this young girl, um, and that this is what mattered to him. And it's some of the most honest, unsparing, truthful, heartbreaking for its honesty and heroism language ever committed to paper. Uh, and that this is really, to me, the high point of the story. Over the two things that matter in life, work and who you love, um, Harry realizes he's failed. And he can do so as he's dying, as only the dying can, with utter candor, honesty, and heroism. And, and that's why this is such a wonderful story. Um, the story goes on. Uh, he, he goes back to his childhood, as people do, and he remembers when his grandfather's log house burned down. Uh, he remembers fishing as a boy in the Midwest. He remembers living in the poor part of Paris and doing good writing, which again mirrors Hemingway writing Fiesta with Hadley when he was poor and unknown and up and coming. Um, and, and these are the things that stick in his mind, the things that really matter, that you don't lie about as you lie dying. Um, and that he didn't write about any of these things. I mean, this is where he realizes the key to his failure. Not only did he not grasp love, he didn't write about the things that really mattered to him um, in life. And so there are 20 or 30 other stories he never wrote. And instead, he, he married Helen and, and hung out with the rich, who, who he thinks are dull. Uh, because they're, they're dulling what matters with all this other nonsense, you don't get to the profound and the real, which is the work that you do and the people that you love. And so he realizes this with great honest insight late in the day. He then, though, having, having reached a bit like Short Happy Life of Francis McCumber, having had this revelation, having had this growth, Harry feels death become very near to him. And death is symbolized by a hyena that's waiting to eat him when he dies, that's lurking around the edge of the camp. And this, this, this bothers Harry. But finally, he's quieted and goes to sleep. And in his fever, he dreams that he's rescued in a plane. And the writing is so good that for a while, in its disembodied stream of consciousness, you believe the dream is real, like Harry does. That's how good the writing is, that you, like Harry, think the dream is real. Oh, he's going to escape. Um, and so he's taken away in, in his fevered dream, which seems so very real, uh, in an airplane. Um, and as he's being rescued, he sees the top of Kilimanjaro. And in that moment in the snow, um, he sees... He sees the top of Kilimanjaro and suddenly he realizes that and he sees the frozen carcass of the leopard trying to touch the face of God. And you realize that he's dying, that this is his effort, that what he's been doing is like the leopard trying to touch the face of God by honesty, by looking at the world as it is, by seeing his failures calmly, clearly, heroically and trying to learn from them in that last moment of consciousness that like the leopard, he's at the top of Kilimanjaro and that the end is near. But that in the end, he has touched the face of God by seeing the truth. Helen wakes up and finds the hyena crying and Harry's dead. And that's the end. It is magnificent writing, a magnificent theme about all the things that matter. And one of the great strengths of American writing in the 20th century is how overambitious it is. <laughs> it's writing about everything. And I remember saying this about my own work. Nobody's going to say that we left anything out, that we gave everything we had out in the field. We're going to write about only the things that matter, the big, profound, important things that matter. We may fail as, as, as flawed human beings, but it won't be for want of trying. 
and it won't be for one of taking a swing at bat. And although the novels of Hemingway in this period are flawed and don't remotely live up to much, although the celebrity culture at the time has got full its tentacles fully around him, in the short stories, Hemingway is being loyal to the Hemingway. The Hemingway of the 30s is the flawed Hemingway of the 30s is being loyal to the much better Hemingway of the 20s. He's still swinging for the fences, writing about the things that matter in a profound, beautiful, clear, heroic manner. I don't think there's a short story better ever written than The Snows of Kilimanjaro, and I commend that to our book club as our next read. Hope you enjoyed this. It was great to do this. I'm on my own today, still in my pajamas at midday, about to go have lunch and, you know, maybe shower. But it was great to do this sitting in the studio uh, in my pajamas with my writing sweater on, talking to you about Ernest Hemingway's short stories and the really peerless Snows of Kilimanjaro and why it's such a profoundly important story and also why it touches me as a person. Hope you enjoyed it. Please do go read it. Uh, again, this can all be found. He, he's still very much in print. And the fifth column of the first 49 stories in 1938 are a version. And then there's a version called The Snows of Kilimanjaro and other stories that's quite good, too. So this is easily available for us to read. We will move on in the culture next um, to For Whom the Bell Tolls, Hemingway's stirring return to form in novel form about the Spanish Civil War. Great movie version of this with Gary Cooper and Ingrid Bergman, by the way. For once, the movies live up to Hemingway's writing. He's very filmic and has been filmed many times. My favorite version is, is probably For Whom the Bell Tolls, but we will be looking at that next week in the culture. Again, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude that so many of you like the culture section, and I'm happy to make this part of now what matters. And it really is the mirror image of our realism. Realism is to protect Western civilization and society and then to enjoy the fruits of that society, which are so downbeaten on this last week as those three moronic university professors pathetically attempted to defend woke nonsense when really what they hate is Western society itself. We celebrate it unabashedly for all its faults that it can produce Hemingway, Snows of Kilimanjaro, and the things that really matter. And the culture section will take a good, hard look at what these things are and celebrate them. So please do subscribe, as so many of you have in the last couple weeks, and please do give us the $70, as I've told the staff, that we're going to make the culture section a part of our lives, too, as we go forward. So we do need the $70 to offset opportunity costs, so the bankers keep, you know, are kept at bay. But rest assured, uh, business is booming and we will continue to do the culture section moving ahead. Thanks so much for embracing it. I love doing it with you. And on to the next, where we will look at For Whom the Bell Tolls next week in the weekend. Take care. Have a great weekend.